Go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. If you haven't been with us the last three weeks, you're thinking, wait, you're supposed to be in Genesis. Well, we wrapped up Genesis a few weeks ago, and now we're into week four of the book of 1 John. And um, we're getting into this passage starting in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, and, and it makes me want to ask you a question um, about taking a test. Do you remember test day when you were in school? Some of you, I know you're still in school and you're thinking, wait, dude, we're only like three weeks into school. It's not time to start talking about tests yet. But you remember test day? And, and, and test day was always that defining moment that let everyone, your teacher included, know whether or not you had been paying attention and doing work during class, right? Uh, because test day, you couldn't hide behind that kid that sat in front of you and put your head on your desk, go to sleep. You had to turn something in. I can remember I took chemistry in, uh, in college at Mercer University, and uh, I had, quite honestly, the worst chemistry professor known to man. Um, but, you know, um, neither here nor there. Exam one comes up. She announces to the class after the exam. We had quite the wide, wide range of scores, and it was hard for me to grade on a curve because our scores in this particular exam ranged from a 98 to a 9. And I boldly and brazenly said, a 9? Who made a 9? Right here. And she let everybody know, actually, you're the one that made the nine. Um, Y'all are going to think I was a terrible student. I I really was, and I just didn't enjoy homework. And um, so calculus freshman year of college see I, I loved college exams and I, I loved like the looking at college because at Mercer they would give you before you registered for classes they would give you what the exam schedule would be for the end of that semester so when it got to the end and you're getting ready to register for classes you could look and say well I know I don't want to have uh, three exams on the same day so I'm going to sign up for this professor for this class because they offer the exam a different time and it was great I love that well Freshman year of college, I took calculus. I did well in calculus in high school, so I thought, no sweat, I'll take calculus my first semester. And I was killing it at calculus. I'm just going to let you know. We had three exams, and after the second exam, I had a 92 exam average in calculus. It was great. Well, the problem was the second exam was a week before you could withdraw from the entire class with the course without any penalty. Professor calls me to, sends me an email, says, um, I need you to come to um, and meet with me in the office. I was like, okay. So I get to, I, I'm getting a little feedback in these monitors. Can we, you can just cut me out of these monitors, it'd be perfectly fine with me. I hear myself enough. But um, she called me to her office, and so I go, and I'm sitting there, and she said, You've got to withdraw from my class, you're not gonna pass. But I've made A's on both of my exams. She said, have you read the syllabus? No. If you had read the syllabus, you would know that your final average, only 40% are the two exams that you've taken. 45% of your final grade is the homework assignments and you have turned zero in for this semester. Mathematically, There is nothing you can do to make a passing grade for the semester in this class. 
So it's true. I've done zero homework. I'm thinking, I'm in college. What's homework for? See, we're looking at tests this morning in 1 John. Because the homework of the Christian life is proved in how we do what the word says are our tests. See, this is actually exam two. I didn't tell y'all last week, but we had our first exam last week as we looked in the first part of uh, chapter two and we looked at obedience. It says, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so this was a test of obedience. And, and today he's looking uh, at, at a test of love. And in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at a test test of our doctrine and is what we believe or what we claim to believe actually in line with how he has revealed himself. And, and I know what you're thinking. I know you're like, wait, wait a second. Um, testing in the Christian faith, James talks about that. That's James chapter one, verse three. Yeah, we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And yeah, so that's when somebody says, well, you shouldn't be a Christian for this reason and this reason. That's a different kind of test. That's a trial type of test. This is a test that proves something about what we proclaim to believe. So if you've got your place in John's gospel, or John's gospel, John's first letter, 1 John chapter 2, if you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to read verses 7 through 14 together, looking at this whole concept and idea of, of the test that John's putting forward as for who we are in Christ Jesus. And he says this, starting in verse 7. I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard and had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. On, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. But the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your, your sins have been forgiven you for his own name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray together. Father, we know your word is strong and true and mighty. That is by your word that we have salvation because you have promised it in the blood of Christ. But Lord, I pray that we would look at your word today, that we would look at what you are telling us about who we are, how you have not just made us, but how you have remade us in the new birth in Christ to love others because you have first loved us. So Father, I ask that you would take over this time. I ask that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, that you would move in our hearts, that we would hear your word, that we would not just hear your word with our ears, but we would hear your word with our hearts where we can apply it to move forward together as a body of Christ seeking to reach this community with the good news of Jesus. And we ask this in his name, amen. 
Thank you. You may be seated. So now that I've confessed to you that I was a terrible college student, let me pull you back in a little bit to the spiritual realm that John is driving to us. And he's, he's using some, some imagery and he's using some language here that helps us see part of what he has in mind by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to understand about life in Christ. I want you to notice with me that at no point in our passages last week, this week, next week, the week after, the week after, is he going to say anything of you're okay because you went to church? He's not going to say you're okay because you had a Sunday school teacher. He's not even going to say you're okay because you've been baptized in water. What John is pulling out for us and what John is going to show us is that there are things that we do and how we exhibit ourselves that are actually going to speak a lot louder than our words. Another way we could phrase this is what you do says more about than what you say. Your method will undercut your message each and every time. And what John shows us, first and foremost, in this passage of Scripture, is that love is the demonstration of the eternal God at work in us. Love is the eternal God working in us, and by our love for others, our love for one another, we're showing that that is who God is. So think of me in just a second. He says here, Beloved, I am writing to you not a new commandment. And now you're thinking, wait, he's talking about commandments. This is another obedience test there, Evan. You done pulled the, the bait and switch on us. You got us all feeling all lovey-dovey. And, and, and you, we, we were sitting there thinking, we were sitting there getting ready to start singing that good old love ballad, you know. All you need is love. Oh, you're going with the Beatles there. Or um, oh, what was another good love song? Um, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more for all of you in the 80s that had your hair going and everything. Yeah, I, we, we have all these great love songs. But what they're talking about is something less than what God has called for you and for me to demonstrate in our bodies, in our actions, in our minds, in our words, in what we say and what we do and how we do those things. And he says here, he says, I'm not writing something new to you, but actually I am giving you something new. What in the world, John? You tell me verse 7 that is not new. You tell me verse 8 it is new. How in the world? What John is doing is pointing to this timeless nature of who God is. A lot of times the reason we don't walk and act in love is because we have failed to apply the reality of God to our heart and to our lives. That God has always been this particular God. That there, we, we can create, when, 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 he says, when he says don't create for yourself any graven images, he's not just talking about casting something out of metal or carving something out of stone. He's like, don't make, God, don't make me look like you. You're supposed to come and look like me. And so as John has shown us, God has revealed himself as light and that function is an act of love in us. This is God's eternal attribute that he, the holy and mighty God, would love us enough to say, you know what, I'm going to show you who I am, I'm going to show you what I'm doing, and I'm going to let you participate in it. That's the eternal God at work in us. And so he says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment. But I'm writing to you an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. The, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment because this, because that, good job. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away. 
What John shows us is that God's people are supposed to be marked by love for one another. Their life is to be marked by his love at work in us. God's people are to be marked by love, a life of loving others. Look at what he says here. If this is who God is, that God is light and God has revealed himself to us and God has, is, is a God of love, then we must be demonstrating that this light has shone in us. Because I know what you're asking. You're asking the same question that Tina Turner asked in 1984. What's love got to do with it? Yeah, come on, let's sing it. What's love got to do with it? Got to do. do we have that up there? We can play that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> See, see, Tina Turner was, right, was singing a song. She didn't write it, but she was singing a song that was talking about guarding your heart because let's just keep this physical and this attraction that I have to, let's just keep it physical because I don't want my heart to get broken. And so she's asking the question, what's love got to do with this relationship that we have? Can't we just live in the moment and have fun? And you might be asking the question, what does love got to do with commandments? Because commandments sound like rules and rules don't sound like anything I love. So why do I need the commandments? What's love got to do with it? Notice what John says here. This commandment is active in you, verse 8, because the true light is already shining and because the light is shining, the darkness is passing away. Let's understand it this way. God loves you enough that he would reveal himself to you, he would reveal your sin to you, and he would show you the way that we are to live. That's huge. And if God loves us that much, if God loves us in such a way that he wouldn't just let us hang out over here in the dark corners, if he loves us enough that he would say, I am the Lord your God, this is my way, I have prepared for you, walk in it, we too must be marked by that love towards others. To love somebody that much. Why do you give rules to your kids, parents? Is it because you want to be a mean old codger to them? Because you want to take away all their fun? Because you think kids are supposed to be seen and not heard? It's because you love them. There's a reason you tell the kid don't touch the hot stove. It's not because you don't want to hear the kid cry. It's because you love them enough to keep them from getting hurt. There's a reason why you tell your child, don't play with sharp knives. Don't run with scissors. It's because you love them. God has given us commands because he loves us. But he says in verse 9, The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is actually in the darkness until now. Actually, see, see, the one who says he's in the light. So this is the one, let's, 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 bat, let's make this Baptist, okay? This is the person that asked Jesus into their heart. This is the one that raised their hand when the evangelist came. I saw that hand. I see that hand up in the balcony on the floor. I see that. Yeah, that, that guy. I read that gospel tract. I gave my life to Jesus. I invited Jesus to come to my heart. All the different ways that we will say that we love Jesus and that we became a Christian. This is someone John is confronting and said, you're saying that this is true about you. But yet everything about what you do does not act lovingly towards those around you. Because a, ha a heart that is shrouded by hate will hide in the darkness. 
a, a heart that is shrouded by hate. And, and let me just, just kind of cut to the quick here. Most of the time, we're not going to say, I hate that person because of this, 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 and this. Because, man, we're, we're too Southern. We're too Christian. We're too, bless your heart. Oh, you poor thing, bless your heart. I heard a youth speaker one time when I was in, in seventh, eighth grade. A uh, guy got saved under his ministry, went to India with him years ago. He said, bless your heart is Southern for saying you're an idiot. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. you're never going to say it the same way again, are you? Because you're going to think, oh, man. But see, maybe we don't outwardly say, I hate that person. I hate that group. But don't we kind of generalize and categorize and, and our inward motive and inward thought is actually a prideful statement of hate? That's too strong of a word. No, well, we're Christian. We don't hate anybody. But the way that we interact, the way maybe we carry a little superiority to someone else based on something that is really out of their control. This past week, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine down in South Georgia, and he was telling me about um, just a couple of months ago, one of their local associations, because there are several different um, uh, ethnic congregations in, in their community. And so the, the associational missionary wanted to have just kind of to, to bring the, some Hispanic congregations, some Filipino congregations, some Chinese congregations, some American congregations, just together, just to have. And they had come to, to my friend's church and said, could you provide the meal for it? And so, so I was talking to the pastor and he said, yeah, um, we, we had like 300 people that we were grilling hamburgers and hot dogs for. And, and he said, one of the Chinese pastors came up to me and said, I, you notice there's not a whole lot of Chinese people that are, that are here at this, at this event. And, and my friend said to him, yeah, I kind of noticed we've, we've got, you know, some of our African-American congregations, some Hispanic congregations. We've got a lot of different congregations, but I've noticed you're the only actual Chinese person that, that we see here. The pastor's response was, is, it's because we don't like Filipinos. We, we can't stand being around Filipino people. So we need to have our own event for just some of the Chinese pastors or some of these other groups that don't include the Filipinos. And the pastor said, because I really hate people from the Philippines. Now, maybe we're not as open and honest as this guy, but do we not avoid certain things and certain groups and certain people because of there's some sort of uh, predisposed prejudice against them? Without looking at who they are, looking at their merits and what God has done in their lives. And, and John says, you're going to kind of run in secret circles and you're going to kind of hide yourself. And you're going to shroud because your heart shrouded in what really what we call it is, is hate. No, 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 it's not hate. It's just, it's just, it's just what? It, it's superiority, which superiority is just a kinder way of saying I'm better than you and therefore you're less than me and I have this difference among you. And, and, and John says, but the gospel did something different. And sometimes we see it play out, unfortunately. Probably one of the, probably one of the, 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 the hardest place to stomach this reality is we see it play out in missions so much. Because in missions, we're kind of drawn, our heartstrings are drawn a little bit towards, towards poorer, under, underprivileged communities. And so we kind of come in, not with this, oh, I hate them, I don't trust them, but this savior complex. Well, if I could just give them what I have that's other than Jesus, then, then they'll be okay. 
You, you remember Love Him, Love Them, the, the Haitian orphan choir that came here? Uh, Linda was with us a couple months ago to kind of share a little, what's going on with their ministry. We came into contact with Love Him, Love Them at our last church. And a um, um, series of events took place and we were able to get the, the Haitian orphan choir three years ago to come and sing with us and everything. And I was having a conversation with, with a, a man in our church after they were there. And, and his heart was, was broken for these kids from Haiti. And he said, you know, I'm never going to get on an airplane. I'm never going to go over there. But, you know, I just want to find ways to help um, kids that are suffering like they are. Because these children, uh, the, the, of the 34 that were there that year, 31 of them had lost their parents in the earthquake of 2010. They were orphaned immediately. And your heart breaks for that. And so I said to the man, I said, well, you know, I know you're probably not going to go to Haiti, but over here on this other side of Anderson, there are children that are growing up in the exact same circumstance of fathers and parents. They're they're, they're poor. They need help. And his response to me was, I'm not worried about those kids. And I said, what's wrong with those kids? They look exactly the same as these Haitian kids. It's just that they live here. And his response to me was, well, their parents could help the situation. That is an example of how we do not walk in the love that God has called us to love in. Because a heart that is shrouded by hate is going to thrive in those dark circles. Because as John tells us in John chapter 3 verse 19, three verses after, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He says, but some people rejected the light because they loved their evil deeds and preferred the darkness. Church, let me ask you, is your heart pushing you and running you towards darkness or or towards the light? Because God's light shines in us in a way that exposes because he loves us. And John goes on and says in verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Look at what he's linking here. This love for one another is a symbol of our love for God and the love that God has for us because God's light in us reveals his love through us. I don't know where you're going to go this week. I have no clue whatsoever. Some of you, I know you're going to come here. You, You work here, so you'll be here tomorrow. Some of you will be here Wednesday night for church. Some of you might be up here to, 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 to visit uh, with some of our shut-ins. You, so you'll come by Tuesday. Some of you be up here helping out with our food pantry on Tuesday, Thursday. But I really don't know where you're going to go. But everywhere you go, you may be the only visible light of God that person sees this week. Amen. So let's go back to our conversations. We've got 261 conversations we have with this person every year. How many of those shine the light of Christ? Because God's love in us is revealed through us as we love. He says, look, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. It it, it abides in the light. One of my favorite animated movies is Prince of Egypt, Story of Moses. And and as he's coming out, and, and, and 
And there's this scene where Moses comes out of the wilderness and he's going back to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And he's showing some of the, the acts that God has given him to demonstrate God's power. And so Pharaoh calls on his priest of his false gods to, to replicate. And, and what ends up happening is they close out all the windows in, the, in, in Pharaoh's palace where it's dark and they open this one and it shines into a mirror that bounces off to another mirror that bounces off to another mirror that bounces off to another one that then lights the entire room. And while I don't agree with the, God, the, 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 the premise of what these priests were trying to do in their dark arts, I do agree that that is an accurate repl repl uh, replication of what God has called us to do, to mirror his light so that we reflect it in ways that we're showing we are basking and standing in the light. And it's demonstrated in how we love one another. People that we don't agree with. People that don't look like us, that don't vote like us, that don't eat. People that like the Popeye sandwich instead of the Chick-fil-A sandwich. People that prefer to, to do their grocery shopping at Walmart versus people that like to go to Publix. I mean, all of the, whether you drink Coke or you drink Pepsi, whether you pull for the Gators, you pull for the Bulldogs. We can all get along, right? <laughs> I'm going to pray for all you Georgia people <laughs> because I love you. When God's light is shining in our heart, we cannot help but point his love towards others. And John says, this is how we know. We're following his commandments and this is a commandment to love. You're like, wait a second. Wait a second, love, no, love is what I feel and I can't help how I feel. Oscar Mayer has this product, it's called bologna. <laughs> bologna goes on sandwich, okay? If it can be commanded, then it can be controlled. And if you were to look up in the dictionary the word love, you're not going to find a noun beside it. That is the emotion. That is the feeling. You're going to find a verb beside it. And love is, that means that love is an action. And you might not be able to control whether or not you like something, but you can control what you do about it. And love is the action that is associated. And God has commanded us to love. Love. You know what love's got to do with it? It's got everything to do with it. Sorry, Tina. It's got everything. So don't stumble in the dark. Look at what he says there. He says, he says the one, verse 11, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You ever play pin the tail on the donkey? What a great game that is. Let's blindfold a child, spin them around many, many times, get them disoriented, and give them something sharp and say, walk, just go. It's a great game, isn't it? Fortunately, somewhere along the line, somebody said, maybe we should use tape on that tail instead of a thumbtack. See, when I, when I played, when I was a student pastor, we played extreme pin the tail on the donkey. And extreme pin the tail on the donkey is not um, get a bigger thumbtack, but spin them around and put obstacles in the way. 
It might be a, you know, get one of the other kids to lay on the ground. It might be a chair. Um, <laughs> um, one, one of the ones that we did um, was <laughs> we, we suspended a, a, you know, a pie pan um, right in front of them. So they walked into it and got pile over their face. You know, just whatever we could do to disrupt them, distract them. You know, it's fun. They're, they're youth. They'll get over it. They'll grow up and go on a talk show and blame it on the pastor and all that thing. Um, but, but because they were blindfolded, they couldn't see what was right in front of them. It's a whole lot easier to walk straight through that door right now when the light of the sun is shining through and I can see everything in front of me, including things that might be in the aisle versus the middle of the night with no light anywhere where there's nothing that, that I'm gonna hit pews, I'm gonna hit the door, I'm gonna run into everything. Because when we're walking in darkness, we're going to stumble. And this world is shrouded by darkness. This world is not receiving the light of Christ. But if we are not walking and abiding in the light of Christ, we're going to stumble. So why add one more obstacle by allowing our heart to be shrouded by something that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why? Why do we do that? Don't stumble. And then John takes a personal turn. He engages in a little personal dialogue here. And he says in this verse, he says, God's revelation of love makes this personal. God's revealed himself to you when he called your name out of the darkness into his marvelous light. When he called you and said, I'm offering you my son. Now, you didn't get a text message. You didn't get a phone call. He spoke into your heart. You didn't get saved because mama was a great mama. She might have been a great mama and she might have been faithful to teach you the good news of Jesus Christ, but you didn't get saved because she was saved. You got saved because God revealed himself to you. God's love makes this personal. Look at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. You have personally been forgiven. You, right where you sit, if you have proclaimed Christ, look at what he says. He says in verse nine, the one who says he's in the light. So if you've said, I got baptized, I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian, I invited Jesus to live in my, in my, in my heart, I gave my life to Jesus, whatever cliche you wanna use, if you have professed faith in Christ, you were saved personally, personally. It wasn't this corporate thing. See, that's one of the cool things about the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us apart from all these other faith uh, and false religions or whatever. You remember, you remember uh, the buy black Nikes, drink the Kool-Aid, hail people from 1997? See, their experience as they were the Heaven's Gate crowd, as they were looking for this comet to fly, to, to, to come by, and they drank that Kool-Aid, it was contingent on all of them being participatory. They weren't going to be saved and rescued by the comet unless all of them did it. The reason they had all of them do it is because they knew if the first person, if they went in sequence after the first person fell over dead, nobody else is going to drink that Kool-Aid. But because the first person came to life in Christ Jesus, we have this flood of the gospel throughout the centuries. Western civilization, the history of the world cannot be told without the history of God's work in us because God has personally revealed himself and come to you and personally saved you right where you sit. And maybe this morning you haven't been saved. Maybe this morning you haven't trusted this God. Let me, let me give you an opportunity to, to, to hear what's real and what's gonna happen. You're hearing the word of God, this, 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 not my word. You're hearing, it's right off the page. 
Um, I had somebody tell me this week, you know, uh, I, I, I appreciate that you don't skip over things because some, some pastors will skip over things. That keeps me safe. It keeps you safe. That way it's not about me. It's about what he has said. I want you to understand because the world around you doesn't want you to understand. But, but here's what you need to know. Because of what Christ Jesus has done, you have one of two options. To accept his gift of hope and peace and salvation, be forgiven and enjoy him forever in eternity in heaven. Or when you pass from this life, if you say, nah, that's not for me or I'm not ready or not yet. And you die in the flesh here, you will spend eternity, eternity separated from him forever. That is hell. And that's not this Hollywood, oh, you go to hell idea. This is, no, truly hell. All of God's wrath and fury poured out on your sin and your rejection of his gospel. But here's the good news. God loves you. God came to you in the flesh. God came to you in the spirit to offer you his means of being saved. You've been forgiven personally. Not only have you been forgiven personally, you have personal fellowship with God. That's, that's the beauty of all this. It wasn't, oh, I'm going to save you and you go on and do your life. No, you have been saved in order to live life in Christ with God the Father. And it's all evidence in how you love and how you love others and how you engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have been, you have personal fellowship with God. Notice what he says there. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him. Christy and I, we've been together now for uh, not long enough. Like that. We have been together since September the 21st, 2006. That day's coming up soon. 13 years since our first date. She she doesn't call it a date. I call it a date. I picked her up, I paid for dinner. It was a date. Um, Earth, Wind, and Fire had a song called September. It starts off, do you remember the 21st night of September? Our kids are convinced that that song was written about Christy and me. Oh yeah, boom. In the 13 years that since Christy and I started dating, I've heard her talk about a lot of people. She's got friends that she played with in her neighborhood when she was a kid. She's got folks she went to high school with, folks she went to college with. And so when we're talking and she uses one of these names, yeah, I know who they are. I have never met them. I would not be able to pick them out of a lineup at the police station if somebody needed my help. I just wouldn't be able to do it. See, there's a difference between knowing someone and having fellowship with someone. There's a difference between knowing God because you heard a sermon, because you sat in a Sunday school class, because you read a Bible verse one time, and actually having fellowship and knowledge with God. And because of this, we have the opportunity to demonstrate that we know God by how we love. You've got personal fellowship with him. He goes on a little bit further and tells us that we have personal victory over evil. He says, I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. Woo! Who likes to get beat at anything? Anybody? I got one one hand back there. He likes to get beat at everything. All right, good. All right, let's play checkers later. Uh, We don't like to get beat. We don't like to lose. But sometimes it feels like we lose at life, doesn't it? 
Something, something grabs us by the ankle and pulls us back. And we feel like we can't get ahead. And we ask the question, wait a second, what's God doing in all this? But God has shown us that we have victory over evil because Jesus said, I'm going to crush death, hell, and the grave by giving my life. We have victory. So we can look at temptation and say, I don't have to succumb to that because I've got Christ. We can look at someone and say, you know what? The world around me says that I should probably not like you, but because of the gospel, I'm going to love you. We've got victory that's, that crushes all separation. Jesus, uh, Jesus tells, or Paul tells us through the blood of Christ Jesus in Ephesians chapter two, that when he died, he broke the barrier down, the wall that divides and separates to make all of us together, one nation, one holy priesthood, the people of God, because we can live in victory. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Most of us walk around in defeat because we don't want to give up what this world has offered because we have forgotten that we serve a victorious God and King. What's holding you back? What's, what, what, what's, what's grabbing your heart? What's pulling you towards the darkness? Jesus has defeated it. You've got victory. Which leads me to the next one. You have a personal source of strength. I'm not talking about you get to go to the gym and you got a trainer that wears way too much spandex and has muscles coming out of their earlobes and they're like, and their name, their name is something, something like Blade or something like that. All right, Blade, spot me. You know, I'm not talking about you got that guy when you put too much on the bench press and he goes, let me give you my pinky finger, I'll help you with. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what the Holy Spirit of God has done. Because you have victory, you have a source of strength. Notice what he says here in this passage of scripture. He says, you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong in the word of God. The reason most of the time we don't experience victory is because we leave the word of God out of the conversation. We leave the spirit of God out of the conversation and we engage spiritual conversations on a worldly plane. We try to talk about, about salvation, but we leave the gospel out, leave what Christ Jesus did out of it. We leave the words of, we talked this morning in our Sunday school class, in college Sunday school, about anxiety and worry and fear. And I was like, you know, a lot of the times the reason we succumb to worry and fear is because we've not hidden the word of God in our heart to be our combat. When we engage in warfare, what Jesus says is your sword is the word of God. You got a Bible in your hand, raise it up. I don't care if it's on a phone, a tablet, or whatever. Even if it's the pew Bible in front of you. You see that? That right there is yours personally. If you don't own one, take the one that you're holding home with you. I, I give it to you. Because I believe fully and firmly that our only hope for seeing the light shine bright is when his word dwells deep within us and we move forward with the good news of Jesus. So let me ask you a question as we wrap this up. Who's your one? What does that got to do with it, right? What's love got to do with it? You know, the most loving thing you can do for someone is tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And maybe my language is gonna be a little bit harsh for some of you and I'm not gonna apologize for that. But if you don't love someone, one person enough to tell them what Christ Jesus has done, you have effectively told them, you can go to hell and I don't give a damn. Period. 
You can spend eternity in hell for all I care, but if you've got the love of God, if you've got the victory of the cross thriving in you, shining by the light of Christ, you're gonna say, hell cannot hold me back from telling you what Jesus Christ has done. Who's your one? If you were here last week, I asked you to take one of the prayer guides right there in front of you. If it's there in the pew, I want you to take it. Start today, today, praying that God would give you that person that you can say, I'm going to love them with the love of Christ and I'm going to stop until they hear the good news of Jesus Christ from my lips. You're going to say, I can't do it. You've got victory. I don't know the words. You've got strength. Take what God has given and show the love of God to the world by how you tell them about Jesus.